0: Turn with me to Micah, the first chapter, and we'll read verses 2 through 5 of Micah 1. Then, as sometimes happens between Wednesday when the bulletin is made and Sunday when the event occurs, We'll look not at Micah chapter 2, but at Micah chapter 4. In the first few verses of Micah 4. Micah chapter 1. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? In Micah chapter 4, verse 1 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And neither will they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Let's pray. Lord be with us again we pray come and help us by your spirit please give us eyes to see please give us ears to hear please give us hearts that are ready to receive your word Lord this is the only hope we have this gospel of the kingdom heralded to us by the Lord Jesus himself give us grace to believe it this day we pray and we ask it in jesus name amen you may be seated in uh, 1987 a little over 20 years ago james montgomery boyce published the second volume of uh, some commentary on the minor prophets and james montgomery boyce was the pastor of 10th presbyterian church in philadelphia for years Uh, Some of you may remember the name Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of that church before Boyce was the pastor. And he published this uh, volume of commentary on the Minor Prophets, which I've been reading and benefiting from over the course of these last months. And in his commentary, now this is 20-plus years ago that the thing was published, and he cites an article that appeared in the New York Daily News April 1st, of 1977, so we're talking 30 plus years ago, before Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York City and cleaned everything up, right? Being the great Messiah that he was. This uh, this is a quotation or a citation from this editorial piece that appeared in the Daily News on April 1st, 19. 19- 77. It was written by a guy I've never heard of. His name was William Reel, R I don't know who he was, but the article was entitled Mean Street, X-Rated Streets, and it focused on New York City and particularly Times Square. And uh, the writer noted that statistics available at that time showed that there were over 400,000 alcoholics, 500,000 narcotics users, 300,000 compulsive gamblers, and that there had been 658,147 felonious assaults, robberies, muggings, rapes, and murders in the previous year in New York City. And then this is a quotation from, from Mr. Reel. Of course, you politicians gave up a long time ago on New York City. They are pathetic and embarrassing. But what is worse than the abdication of political leadership in New York is the abdication of spiritual leadership. There is no one willing to speak the truth, to call the Neros to account, to warn of the wrath of God. When was the last time a Catholic leader said anything more forceful than, God bless you? The Protestant leadership is effete and insipid, debating holy orders for lesbians at a time when grandmothers are regularly and brutally assaulted by muggers and rapists. The Jewish establishment is moribund. Jeremiah must weep. When looking down from above, he contemplates these sad sacks sitting in their studies, composing Passover messages that have no more spiritual content than a press release from the Liberal Party. End of quote. Wow. Wow. Boy. Is that scathing or what? Not so much about the the sociology of the thing or the politics of the thing, but but the spirituality of the thing and the reluctance, the hesitation, the failure of spiritual leaders. Now, I have no idea who William Reel was or is, no, no idea at all, but he, but he really does sort of lump everybody into one big kettle and asks, where are the prophets? Where are the prophets who were and and who are courageous and who are inclined to speak into the midst of the deterioration, the cultural, the social, the deterioration, the political deterioration that he, 30-plus years ago, saw all around him in New York City. I know that sin is a four-letter word. I know that people leave churches because people talk too much about sin. I know that to be the case. I know that people get dissatisfied or dismissive of Christians because they want to talk about sin, because they want to focus on sin, because they think that sin is a real problem. I know that, and I understand all of that. Micah was not reluctant to tell the truth, not Michael, Micah, (laughs) Micah was not reluctant to tell the truth, as Micah stood in the midst of his own New York City, in the midst of his own cultural malaise, in the midst of his own cultural, political, and religious deterioration, and speak the truth. Now, there's a point that we've been making as we've made our way through the Minor Prophets, it recurs over and over and over again. And the point is simply this. There is somebody at home in the universe, somebody at home in the universe who cares very much about what is right and who is powerful enough to do something about it. And the one who is at home in the universe who cares about what is right, who is powerful enough to do something about it, is the personal and infinite God who is really there. And as Micah looked at his day, and as Hosea looked at his day at the same period of time, and as Isaiah and Amos looked at the world of their day at approximately the same time, they spoke, they spoke in behalf of, of the infinite personal God who is really there. Who loves what is right, who does what is right, and who cares, and this is important, who cares about the oppressive weight and the destructive capacity of sin. This is what we're going to come to, and I'm I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but We tend to think so much as individuals about the individual aspect of sin. That it's a personal thing. That it's about not getting caught. But Micah and Hosea and Isaiah and all of the rest of the prophets saw sin very differently. They saw it as an oppressive and crushing thing and they saw its tremendous destructive capabilities. And they cried out about it. Three things that are going to come out of Micah or any of the minor prophets as you look at them, or the major prophets for that matter. Three things that I want to focus on this morning. First, the problem of sin. Second, God's response, God's certain response, and thirdly, God's promise of restoration. The problem of sin, God's certain response, and God's promise of restoration. In verse 5 of chapter 1, there are a couple of words that appear and they're translated transgression, and sin. A couple of words. There are actually several words that the Old Testament uses that the Hebrew employs for describing different aspects of sin. This probably isn't the best metaphor for thinking about sin because rainbows are beautiful and delightful and colorful things. (laughs) But, But if you think of sin as a rainbow, these different words... Describe different colors of that rainbow. They extract different significant layers that are present in sin. And two of them are here in this word, in this uh, fifth verse. The second of the words is translated sins. And it's kind of the generic or common word. It appears over 580 times in the Old Testament as a representation of sin. And it means simply to miss the mark or to miss the way. It's used of archers when they do hit the mark or when they fail to hit the mark. They're either good archers or bad archers, archers who never miss the target or those who may miss the target. It's also used of travelers who miss the way. You you remember what Yogi Yogi said, Yogi Berra said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. It seems like such a subtle and small thing to come to a fork in the road and go either to the left or to the right, to, to miss the path. But if you, if you think of that fork in the road as a watershed, if you make a mistake and you go down the wrong path, think about this, friends. Before very long, you're asking yourself, How in the world did I get here? How in the world did I get here? The distance between the two paths at the fork in the road is an imperceptible distance. But as you travel the path, the distance becomes greater and greater and greater. And pretty soon you're asking yourself, how in the world did I get here? Keep that in mind. The second of the words that is actually the first in verse 5 is the word that's translated transgression. And here's the basic idea behind the word transgression. It describes, now get this, because again, you and I tend to think of, of a sin as a sort of a standalone thing, right? As a kind of an isolated thing. It's just an act, it's just an attitude, it's just a standalone sort of a thing. But the Hebrew word conveys the idea of a breach in a relationship. A transgression represents, reflects, implies a breach in a relationship, a fracturing of a relationship. And so very clearly, a sin is not a standalone thing. It's not an isolated thing. It impacts someone or some other thing. It's never a standalone deal. Let me give you maybe a rather silly illustration. When I was about seven years old, half a century ago, I was at the Westside Grocery Store, the Westside IGA on Chicago Road in Niles, Michigan. And I don't know why I was there. I remember that I was on my bike. Uh, I don't remember what I bought. Don't, I, I don't remember any of that stuff. But I was seven or eight years old. And while I was in the store, my eye was captured. Some of you will remember this. Others of you have no category for this but my eye was captured by a rabbit's foot keychain. Remember those things? Yeah. yeah, of course. My eye was captured by a rabbit's foot keychain. Not only was my eye captured by the rabbit's foot keychain, but my heart was captured by the rabbit's foot keychain. And as, as Woody Allen said when he was asked... Why? He had an adulterous affair with his stepdaughter, Mia Pharaoh's daughter. He said the heart wants what the heart wants. Little well, seven year old guy I didn't know who Woody Allen was. This is long before him and Mia Pharaoh and that notorious trial that went on in New York City. My eye was captured by something at the West Side IGA, but something deep inside me was captured as well. I liked it, and I wanted it. I wanted the rabbit's foot. It became, and this one you do know, it became my precious. My precious. And so I took it. I took it and I put it in my pocket and then bought my bubble gum or whatever it was that I went to the Westside IGA to purchase, hopped on my bike and rode home. And it was a very short while after getting home that it became clear to my mother that I had not paid for the rabbit's foot keychain. And so my mother packed me in the car and trundled me off to the west side IGA where I gave the rabbit's foot keychain back to the clerk at the counter, apologized to the clerk at the counter, and had to find the store manager to apologize to the store manager as well. You all all are nodding. Apparently you've had little children who have done the same thing. Or is it that you've done the same thing? What's the point of the little story? Point of the little story is that one act is not a standalone thing, is it? One act, in which a person violates a trust, is not a standalone thing. There was premeditation, and there was more premeditation and I was looking around the store to make sure that I wasn't going to get caught. And so there was scheming, and there was plotting, and there was planning. And all of that stuff is going on in the soul of this little seven-year-old boy, and nobody knows it's happening. Nobody can see it, but there is an external act that is the fruit of, what, of the turbulence in the soul. Woven into that act is all of this. All of this covetousness. All of this love of something that the lover believes will bring him salvation. That's the essence of idolatry, friends. The text tells us that Samaria is the transgression of Jacob, that the high place In Jerusalem is the sin of Israel. And what had Israel done and what had Judah done? Israel had exchanged the creature, the created thing, a God that cannot save, a God that has no righteousness, had exchanged the creature, the creator for the creature, and had sought in idols a salvation that idols can never deliver. Now think about the implications of this one little act that I committed, the result of this little heart, this sweet little boy of seven years in age, scheming, premeditated, stealing something that was not his. Think of all of the relationships that were violated by that one single act. Relationships of trust, a relationship between a child and his parents, a relationship between a child and a store clerk a relationship between a child and a store manager, a relationship between a child, a seven or eight-year-old child, and the owners of that store or the stockholders who had invested in that store who were the rightful owners of everything, the contents in that store the relationship of a 7 or 8 year old boy with his friends because if the friends think the little 7 or 8 year old boy will steal something from a grocery store, my stuff isn't safe either. My dear friends, no single act of transgression is a standalone thing. It has rippling effects that cascade down across relationships and begin to consume groups of people. And the result is that patterns of behavior are established and those patterns of behavior begin to engulf whole cultures. And single acts of disobedience become insidious and relentless and pervasive and swallow up people and families, and towns, and cities, and whole cultures. That's one act that has those far reaching implications. There are six billion people on this planet. Think about it, begin to do the multiplication. It becomes exponential in force. It becomes a relentless tidal wave of destruction. Six billion people with hearts like mine, plotting, scheming, seeking, stealing, lying, coveting, distorting, twisting. Think about it. Some of you who have been through the EE thing maybe years ago, remember the little illustration. Imagine that you commit three sins a day. Good for you, if it's that few. Three sins. What about all of the acts of premeditation? You see where we're going with this? Begin to do the math of this thing, and it becomes an exponential, relentless flood of oppressive weightiness and destruction. It's not one small thing. But it is a relentless force for crushing and destroying. Laws can't contain it, folks. Laws can't contain it. Gates, fences... Windows, locks, can't contain it. Sin is like a rancid smell. It permeates everything. It gets into the fibers of a piece of of clothing. And here's the point. There is someone in the universe who cares about this. The infinite personal God who is really there. And what you find in verses 2 through 4 of Micah chapter 1 is the certain response of Almighty God. He will put an end to it. He will put an end to it, my friends. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God himself be a witness against you. Who is in view here? The entire earth, all of the peoples, all of the nations, the whole of humanity is put on the defense. And the Lord God will be a witness against the whole of humanity. In verse 3, the Lord is coming. He is coming out of his place. He will come down and He will tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire is melted. Like waters that pour down a steep place. He will come. Let me give you some passages just to make note of. Throughout the Old Testament you find these references to the coming judgment of God reflected in terms of cosmic disintegration, deterioration, devolution. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 13. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel 32, verses 3 through 8. The goal of the creation is harmony, symmetry, beauty, light, abundance, interdependence. And what causes that harmony and that beauty, that light and that abundance, is the blessing of God upon the creation. All of those things are the fruit. But when God comes in judgment, the blessing is withdrawn. And the result is that everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. All of this in Micah and in these other passages, this imagery of deconstruction and devolution and disintegration, all of that imagery is picked up in the New Testament. And all of it points ahead to this final climactic return of the God of heaven and earth when he will with power and relentless force do what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 3. He would come as the conquering king and he would crush the head of the serpent and he would overturn every evidence of evil. And there is no power on earth, there is no force in the heavens that can stand against him. There is the certainty of God's response And when he comes at that time, God who cares and God who has power to act, he will right every wrong, he will correct every injustice, and every sin and transgression will meet its just reward. Every sin. But thankfully, marvelously, mysteriously, wonderfully, God has acted before acting. God has intervened before his final intervention. And God has promised restoration. When did that restoration come? chapter 4 talks about that restoration it talks about swords being turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks for the for the cultivation of vegetation it says in verse 3 that nations will not war against each other but but rather every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. And, and no one will be afraid. And there will be this peace that will be pervasive. It will be deep and it will be far and it will be wide. And it will encompass the whole of what God has made. When does it come? Verse 1 says that it will come to pass in the latter days. And what are those latter days? What are those latter days? Hebrews 1, 2 tells us when those latter days began. In the past, God spoke to us at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, tells us basically the same thing Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says. These things happened to them. That is the Old Testament saints. Those things happened to them as examples to us, New Testament believers. They happened as warnings for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And Peter writes about it. 1 Peter one twenty. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Micah from his place in history, Isaiah from his place in history, as we said last week, looked down the hallway of history, and he looked to a day which the Old Testament prophets refer to as the latter days, the last days, the end days. What they could not see because of where they were is that those latter days were telescoped from the consummation, the final fulfillment of those latter days, telescoped down into their inauguration in the person of Jesus. But when Jesus came the incarnate king of glory, he inaugurated the latter days. It's the words of the Bible. It's what the Bible says. Micah looked to the last days. The writer of Hebrews says, these are those. Peter says, these are those. The language of the prophets is taken up by the New Testament writers and what the prophets longed for, what the prophets hoped for, what the prophets saw as a reversal of the great wreckage of the fall was inaugurated when Jesus came. And you ask the question rightly, really? 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 Doesn't look like it to me. Well, my dear friends, look closer. Look closer and don't be discouraged. Because in the midst of the days that are passing away, the new days have begun. And there are two places you can look for evidence of the presence of the future. The presence of the last days, the presence of the days which the prophets referred to. You can see it in essentially two things the heralding of the gospel of the kingdom. I had a breakfast this last week with someone who has just become a Christian. You know, you're not born into that condition, you're born again into that condition. And every time a person is born again into that condition, the things that you confessed this morning happened. At the right time, appointed by Him, God effectually calls all those whom He has predestined to eternal life. He calls them by His Word and Spirit out of their natural state of sin and death into grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually with a saving understanding of the things of God. He takes away their hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh. He renews their wills. And by his almighty power, he leads them to do what is good. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? If any man is in Christ, boom, new creation. The latter days have made an appearance. Something has been born out of the old and translated into the new. And that is an evidence. That little seven or eight year old boy who didn't care that he stole something that belonged to somebody else came to a place in his life where he cared about those things. And that is because the future intruded itself into the present In the preaching of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there was a new creation. But there's another place that you can look. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to keep coming back to these two things. You'll be hearing these things. You have heard these things. And I'll never stop saying these things. The evidence of the new creation is in the preaching, the heralding of the gospel of the kingdom and the transformation of individual lives by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and in deeds of love and mercy. I've got to wrap this thing up, but let me just tell you a story. Barb and I went to the farmer's market in downtown Winter Park on Saturday. And we met a guy selling coffee. My age, in his 50s. Twenty-five years ago, he's living in Hawaii. Tough life. He goes to a church in Hawaii called Hope Chapel. Never heard of it, probably never hear of it again. But they took a mission trip to Nicaragua in the early 1980s. And they visited the border between Nicaragua and Honduras. Visited all of these villages along some river down there. And there were no schools And kids were growing up in the midst of the civil war that was raging all around them. They were growing up without hope. And 24 years later, that guy is no longer living in Hawaii, but he has started 20 schools along that border. He has 74 faculty in those schools. And 43 of those faculty were students in one of those schools. Yes. where is evidence of the kingdom? It's in a 28 or 30 year old guy who goes to Nicaragua in the midst of a civil war and catches a vision for a need and forsakes a comfortable life in Hawaii to start schools along a river. The person who became the minister of education after the revolution and democracy was established for a time in Nicaragua. The minister of education said to him, please don't leave Nicaragua. If you leave, the schools will go away. And so he continued to work and start schools. And then he got to know a coffee grower. Look, we're all so impressed with Starbucks, right, because they're so green and all that stuff. He got to know a coffee grower. He said, who buys your coffee? Starbucks. How much do they pay you? 80 cents a pound, so that I can buy it for 12 bucks a pound. He said, I'll pay you a $1.60 a pound. He pays him more than twice what Starbucks pays. And the difference, guess where it goes? Not into his pocket. It goes back into the pockets of the local growers. Microeconomics. A flourishing economy because one guy whose name I don't even know goes to Nicaragua, sees a need. And because he is a servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that part of the world is changed. And that's the evidence of the kingdom. And those little sniffs, those little bits of fragrance of the kingdom are going to be spread farther and farther and wider and wider and deeper and deeper and at the end of history, God will come back and that kind of beauty and that kind of harmony and that kind of compassion and mercy will fill the new heaven and the new earth. And you can get sense of it in either of those places. The heralding of the gospel of the kingdom and the witness of deeds of love and mercy that all flow out of the heart of a God who cares about injustice and unrighteousness in the midst of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much more, you know, there's so much more to say about these things. Oh, Father, thank you for giving your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming and being faithful to the commission of your Father. Coming into the world not just that individual sins might be forgiven, but thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come into the world so that the ravaging, rapacious effects of sin and transgression might be reversed. We beg of you again, go on to subdue our corruptions and more and more rule and reign in our hearts that the evidence of the kingdom might be seen before the eyes of the watching world. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me have you stand and sing, and I hope you can sing with glad hearts. There is reason to rejoice. We have you stand and sing number 604, Rejoice, Ye Pure in Heart.